Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. I'm Mujahat Ali. And we are very excited to be joined by an esteemed political expert, professor, and author, Ben Ansel. But I will kick it over to Waj to what has become our favorite pastime here on Democracy-ish, our movie phone intro. Ben Ansel is the author of the new book, Why Politics Fail. Ben Answer is also a professor of comparative democratic institutions in the Department of Politics and International Relations and a professorial, professorial fellow at Nutfield College. He received his PhD from Harvard and also studied at Oxford. And he has a British accent, which means anything he says is correct and we must follow him. Ben, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. I, I tried my best. Thank you. Well, that was really that was really great. It just makes me so embarrassed about the length of this title. I thought you might run out of breath before you got to the I end. I tried. I I think um, professorial is the finally yeah. thing the thing that got me. I was doing really well until professorial and I'm like damn Brits, they got me. Um Okay. Hi. Well, the reason it's so long is because uh, I interviewed for two jobs and they couldn't decide which to give me, so they just combined all the words into one really long title. <laughs> so I love that, that so for I'm, you. I'm doomed to have this forever now. But there we are. Do you on your on your card? Do you have like an eight font, all of it in three lines? <laughs> you know, this is why I'm so glad that business cards don't exist anymore. Because when I, I taught at the University of Minnesota for for seven years, and the first thing I did when I got the job is I got business cards. I got like the you know like boxes and boxes of them, and I gave out two. <laughs> and that was like so. I thought, right, Amazing. I'm never doing this again. You know, yeah. I, I was listening. I was listening to some of your interviews, and and I realized as much. You know, you, you have an interesting perspective because you spent time in the American Midwest, the real America. Uh, because if you haven't figured out by now, me and Danielle are not real Americans. We're not from the Rust Belt. We're not from the heartland. We're not electable. You know, we're 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 the interesting ones. But you spent years here in America, and you spent years in England, and you've seen our political dysfunctions. <laughs> uh, Brexit, for example. Uh, it, it was a choice. Trump was a choice. And, and, you know, this book of yours, I think, is very topical. But before we get into the book, I think it's important. You know, you are a political economist. And you use that lens to really diagnose what you see some of, uh, of the problems that are uh, affecting both of our countries, and you see a way out. So 
for our audience, right? I, I am a simple, unfrozen caveman lawyer. Big words confuse me. So talk to me like I'm an eight-year-old child. Explain why, uh, why the lens of a political economist can really help us understand what's happening right now. Okay, so you know how economists always advertise themselves as like the, the hard-skinned guys who have to work in, in the coal mines of the dismal science, right, where everything is a hard choice, where scarce assets have to be given from person to person. Like in, in my view, those are like, those are the happy gallivanting forests of social science, because what's really hard are political decisions, right? So it's one thing to figure out if you have property rights to things already, how you might redistribute them or distribute them in different ways and efficiency and so on. But what if you don't have any? Right? What, if, what if instead of a property right, you have a law of the jungle situation where you own stuff because nobody has killed you yet in order to get that stuff? Um, so politics is you know, a really dismal science. It's another step back. And the tool that somebody like me uses is to take some of the insights from economics about how we make tough choices and just to apply them to politics where we can't be sure that there are perfect markets or that there are judges that can enforce contracts, uh, where we, we basically sort of on our own in some sense, um, not knowing that the political system can always function or guarantee itself. And we saw that, right, over the last decade in the United Kingdom and the United States, is you had all of these, these institutions you thought would last forever, all of these norms of behavior, and then it turned out that, that they were just promises that we made that we then reneged on and abandoned, uh, that there wasn't a backstop, right? There wasn't somebody you could call in uh, as an umpire to say, whoa, 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 everybody calm down. Actually, you have to do this. Um, and so for me, political economy is just trying to apply a set of rules and frameworks to think about these types of political traps. And there are five big traps in the book I go through, you know, why they're so endemic why we see them in lots of situations, not just in contemporary America and contemporary Britain, but we, you know, we see them every time we look at human civilization hundreds of years back, just in slightly different forms. You know, what I find really interesting about what you just said is, is this idea, both in the United States and in Britain, that we have um, of political norms, right? And this idea that we all assumed here in the United States in particular, um, before Donald Trump became president of the United States, that there were a lot of things that were just set in stone. And I actually think that a lot of things that the citizens of this country believed, um, they thought were law, right? And, and we now right. recognize them as just handshake deals, right? That, that mm. each president, each, you know, 44 presidents prior to Donald Trump all agreed on these same principles, these same set of morals, the same set of values, and we just acknowledge them and continue to move about. Um, but it is evident that our politics, in a way, was shaped on that principle of norms, but also on the ignorance and lack of education, civic mm. education of the public. Do you find, what do you see, I guess, similarly in terms of how the UK and the US have educated their citizenry to really understand how government works and how we have both in both countries been able to place ourselves in this space where norms can just fall and now we're all completely disoriented and thrown off 
by outsized actors. Yeah, so let me start with with a positive take on this, which is I actually, and I think this is an important part of being a political economist. I think people are pretty smart, and I think most people are pretty smart. Uh, and the, uh, one of the nice things about the kind of framework I use is it avoids what you might call the little brother problem, where you kind of treat your younger sibling as as they're not real, like they don't really think like me. But I, you know, most people do think like you, and they're smart. And the hard thing about uh, politics is that the people it's acting on are really smart and they can try and, you know, change and subvert the system and, and get what they want. Um, do they always know how the system in which they operate works? Uh, you know, look, I teach political science for a living and I often discover that there are obvious political facts that I ought to know that I don't. Uh, and, you know, so let me now apply that to somebody who doesn't have teachers for a living. Most of the time, people quite correctly think, when a norm is about to get broken, you can't do that, right? You can't do that, we say to ourselves. And the reason why you can't do that doesn't have to be that you know the constitutional principles behind it, but because it's a set of expectations that we've all developed, right? Interacting with Mm. one another, talking to one another over decades. And so, of course, we think, look, there are things you can do and there are things you can't do. I think the big change of the last 10 years is politicians realizing that actually they can do that if nobody stops them. And why mm-hmm. not? And the reaction of so many of us has been, wait, well, you can't do that. And this is, this is the problem about politics, right? My interest in political economy earlier is that there isn't an umpire who can come in and tell them, no, you can't do that, unless it violates some kind of constitutional principles. And, you know, Donald Trump did a, did a, a lot of really uh, vicious things that turned out to be quasi-constitutional in nature, and there's certainly no constitutional rules uh, about just bad-mouthing all of your opponents and insulting members of the community, right? I mean, that's protected by the First Amendment. So we kind of woke up in a world where it turned out that there were lots of things you could do, but that people didn't do, and we thought our norms would protect us, but they're not strong enough to prevent a really powerful actor with malign intentions. And also the mm. institutions mm-hmm. that were that were developed to somehow serve as a backstop can also be corrupted, and stuff Absolutely. that we assume is unconstitutional. If you have a, a bought out Supreme Court with uh, judges who seem more aligned with right wing causes than you know the rule of law or equity uh, and their rights, well then they can rubber stamp it, right? And yeah. so in your book, it's really interesting. I was reading yesterday, and you know you, you mentioned it uh, about these traps, these challenges that we have right now. And it's very interesting because one would assume, oh, it's misinformation and fascism and white supremacy, but your five traps, and I'm going to read them and tell me if I'm wrong, are the following. The challenges, democracy, equality, security, solidarity, and prosperity. And you use an example <laughs> of climate change. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah right. these are these, these small things that, you know, prosperity, solidarity. Who needs it? Who needs that democracy, right? So, so just using the example of climate change or in the beginning of your book, why is climate change, which is this existential threat that is coming for all life, contrary to what Donald Trump says, he says it's a hoax created by China. You know, you say that these five things that I just mentioned are a challenge to confront climate change. Break that down for us. Yeah. So, you know, it would be really nice if the only problem with climate change were bad actors claiming it's a hoax, because that would be that would be great in some way, because we would know what to do. Right. We would know that it was a, it was you counter misinformation with information. Look, sometimes that works and it doesn't work. Right. Because there's a backlash and people get mad if you say they're misinformed. But 
the problem at least would be clear, right? There's bad information out there. How do you prevent that? The problem with climate change is even if everybody's well-intentioned, we still end up in trouble because ultimately somebody has to pay costs of climate change uh, in order for us to debate it. Uh, but the somebody who has to pay costs uh, is kind of hard to track down, right? So in other words, nobody's really monitoring what I'm up to right now. Uh, like it is, it is like 90 degrees Fahrenheit in Britain right now, which, is, which also tells you something about global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be running air conditioners all the time in my office. <laughs> the good news for the climate is it's really hard to get hold of air conditioners in the United Kingdom, right? But I could be blasting them away and contributing to, to you know, global warming on the whole, while at the same time driving around in a Tesla and telling everybody you know, that, that I mean well, and nobody would really know. Now, it's true I'd have to pay for the extra energy, right? So there would be some cost I incur. Um, but people can make grand promises without changing their behaviors. Uh, and all of the behaviors that we have to change are costly to us, right? So the French just stopped you from being able to fly from Paris to Lyon. Um, because it's really convenient to fly between French cities. It's also, it turns out, pretty convenient to get on a high-speed train, and that's why they were able to do it. Uh, but people always think, well, that's the benefit I get from behaving as I do now. And what, what's the benefit I get from abating climate change? Well, it's really diffuse uh, in the sense that, you know, it's not just me who gets it, right? So, like, I'm getting a kind of little part of the share of collective benefit here, whereas I'm definitely having to sacrifice my flight to Lyon. But it's also probably in the future. Uh, It's not guaranteed. I can't see it. I can't, it's not going to prevent hot summers, right? In the Mm. sense that, in fact, the climate's going to keep on warming up at least one and a half, probably two degrees, and preventing it from getting to three or four is a great goal. But it's really hard individually to, to make that real for people in in the way that, no, you can't fly to this place. It's, that's a real cost. And so there's a really asymmetric nature to these challenges. And so, look, I would love it if we could convince Donald Trump to turn around and say, look, climate change is real. Maybe there's money in it for him to do that somehow. Right? That's how we get him to do it. But that wouldn't get rid of this more basic problem that each of us has an incentive to do things that warm up the planet. Collectively, we'll all have to pay a cost and it's hard to monitor everybody to do that and to get them to follow their promises. From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the Senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. 
Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. I think that what you know what what your book also presents right is the is this is the paradox between what the collective needs and what individuals want right mm, and yeah, that is exactly, exactly. what you, what you're laying out right here however you know there was a time call me crazy call me traditionally naive but there was a time when you know, older generations actually gave a shit what was going to happen mm-hmm. to younger generations, that mm-hmm. they, in terms of the legacy and, and impact that they wanted to have, they wanted to leave each generation better than than the one that they lived in. Is, is there like this, this crazy, just, Daniel? Yeah, Naive. No, it's, it's, it's insane. Because when you say like, oh, well, the benefits of actually doing the right thing for climate change are so diffuse. And I'm just like, are they? Because we just experienced in New York City, where I am, and, and Waj is, is in the D.C. metro area, you know, we just experienced a different type of lockdown that didn't have to do with a global pandemic. It had to do mm-hmm. with the air being so goddamn toxic coming down from the Canada wildfires. And why are yeah. the Canada wildfires um, burning so early and so fast and so, you know, a- and so out of control? because they've had the hottest spring that they've ever had on record Absolutely. right and they yeah. and we've cre- and they and 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 the the fact that the, the globe is getting hotter has created this tinderbox effect um that has uh, you know allowed for these brush fires to kind of run and now it wasn't just the people in Canada that were affected it was 100 million people inside of the United States so uh, well, when we look at this and we say we just had to spend three days inside wearing masks if you had to go outside because you were going to be breathing in toxic air. This is going to become more of the norm and not just an anomaly. And also, if you have kids or give a shit about kids, then maybe we actually want to make sure that they have clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, um, and, and clean soil to to continue with our agricultural system. Like, is it just that collectively we have just become selfish? Just that, like, the the idea of 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 our individual needs and desires just have become so I, I don't know. I, I guess delusioned uh, to the point that like. You know, it's every every person for themselves. We've just become so tribal in that way. Yeah. So I think we might have become more selfish than we were in the past. Um, I think it's so. I think it's fair to say that the silent generation, the greatest generation, you know, people born in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, probably had more of a civic spirit. Uh, and the way they got there was by having the Great Depression and the Second World War. Uh, and I think those moments, horrible as they were, had a variety of unifying effects, you know, not least because they made the rich poorer. Right? So they, they, I mean, this is one of the 
horrible truths about equality is that the big uh, decreases in inequality that we see historically come when really bad things happen, particularly war, but also famine and plague, right? So the Black Death was really great for the peasants who survived it. Um, I think war, so wars, you know, they have that effect of reducing equalities among people and in really unequal countries. It's easy to see that kind of people don't have a sense of shared solidarity anymore. Uh, but then there's the sacrifice in war. Uh, and so you also saw just huge growth in America, in America's state capacity, you know, firstly, of course, in the New Deal, but then through the, you know, 40s through the 60s. Uh, and then it stops, right? It stops basically with the creation of Medicare and Medicaid. And from that point onwards, those kind of collective goals, I think, have been, uh, they've been anathema in American politics. They've been, think how hard it was for Barack Obama to get through a pretty, you know, what I call in the book, a pretty milk and toast, pretty moderate healthcare bill that from European standards looks you know, kind of crappy. Uh, and you know, and it was inspired about, in part by Republicans, Mitt Romney, right? Inspired by Mitt Romney, who then has to turn against it for, for his own party. I mean, who knows what he really thinks about this? You can see with John McCain, right, deciding not to kill it, that clearly some people on the left of the Republican Party, if you can say such a thing, you know, maybe that maybe they recognize that. But you know, that got sucked into America's racial politics. Right? I talk in the book about Congressman John Lewis and Emmanuel Cleaver and people being spat at and called racial slurs when they go up. To, to the passing of the bill. So something has clearly gone wrong there. Mm -hmm. But let me mm -hmm. rephrase it slightly by saying the 50s and 60s were not a great place for African-Americans. <laughs> uh, this is still the era of Jim Crow. And I talk about this a bit in the book. America's Senate and House are much, much more polarized uh, than they were between 1940, actually between the 30s and the 70s, right? far hmm. more polarized. But the reason is because half of the Democratic Party were Dixiecrats. Uh, so, you know, what looks like everybody getting along is just the Democratic Party being split between people who want to keep Jim Crow alive and don't want civil rights. So maybe America has always been split in different ways, right? I'm not sure the era of the 50s and 60s is more equal. There is maybe a greater increase in public spending, but it's also a really racially divided country with horrible gender norms that explodes into violence at the end of the 1960s. So, you know, maybe it's always been bad. Is, is I mean that's and a depressing that, answer that, too. Just real quickly, watch. I just want to say because that's something that I've really been wrestling with mm. over the last several years is has this always like am I just more hip to because this is my work and you know and 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 life is that has it always been this bad right mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. when you explain that and you say well there was this fractitious breakdown that was about racism and the economy in the 1950s and 60s. Okay, now fast forward to the 21st century. And guess what? There is a there is a breakdown. And it is yeah. between two parties, not within not within, yeah. you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, but it is between, you know, those two straight parties where you have one that is wholly believing in fascism and the other one that is, you know, trying to hold on to democracy. But there's always been that 30%, I guess is what I want to say, mm -hmm. that has never wanted progress, never wanted equity, didn't want women to vote, you know, didn't want Jim Crow to end, um, that we've been fighting against. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I think when I was, when I was, so I lived in the States between 2000 and 2013, I was born in Stanford University Hospital. <laughs> so, um, Are you a citizen? I, 
I am indeed. Um, I remember very well that there was some number about, I think it was 27% was this baseline below which George W. Bush's opinion uh, rating and polling approval could never go. That there were always a group of people who, no matter how bad governance got under the Republican Party in Bush's second term, which was pretty bad, people. Really you know, bad. It's funny how we've kind of recalibrated our views on that. I, you know, I think Donald Trump is, is probably a worse human being in terms of his character than George W. Bush. It's not clear to me that if you look at the policy outcomes, that it was actually worse under Donald Trump. A disastrous uh, war on terror that has ruined countries and generations. Yeah. I, I mean, and just look at, look at Hurricane Katrina. Um, mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, maybe it would have been equally bad under Trump. It's not clear to me, though, that even Trump managed COVID as badly as George W. Bush managed Katrina, right? So, and, and there were always people supporting uh, that. And, you know, I think it, that is true in most countries around the world is that there are political divisions. They fall along, you know, left, right, redistributive kind of economic dimensions. Sure, they do. But they also fall along a kind of liberal authoritarian dimension uh, that's pretty uh, robust to social change. Let me just say one thing, Danielle, about norms, though. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I think we've, we've spoken a lot more about these issues in the last five or 10 years, you know, it's partly police violence, right? It's partly the death of George Floyd, but the death of George Floyd is one in a series of deaths, right? Of, of African-Americans at the hands of the police. I mean, we could go back to the nineties and the LA riots and so on, right? This yep. is nothing new, but norms have changed so that you can't say that and you can't do that norms we talked about earlier. Those have changed in, you know, in terms of gender norms, just enormously in terms of sexuality, right? I mean, the America I um, moved back to in, in 2000 was an America that was about to ban gay marriage in, in, in almost every single state, often constitutionally. That's changed dramatically. And I think norms about racism on the whole have improved. I mean, it's pretty, pretty tenuous there, but, uh, you know, I think, I think there has been improvements. So you can certainly see it in the United Kingdom, right? The Conservative Party... Uh, may have had a struggling period of government over the last few years. The one, I think, positive thing you can say is that we've had several finance ministers uh, in a row who are ethnic minorities and now an ethnic minority prime minister. So things have changed, and sometimes we forget those because we're, we're really polarized about these issues. But if you think about like the average of the norm, actually, I think that's improved quite a bit. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, uh, we're mentioning how we, we keep trying to strive for these ideals, and yet we're beset with both selfishness and also the self-interest of, let's just say, bad faith actors and white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? And so something yeah. like climate change that should be an existential threat to all of us, we're stuck. Another one that just exhausts us, gun violence, the number yeah. one cause of Absolutely. death of children in America. There's a quote in your book I want to read where you say the following, democracy, equality, solidarity, security, and prosperity are admirable things. But in each case, we will face a political trap triggered by our own self-interest that stops us from reaching our collective goals. One of those, in my fear, Ben, and I want you to chart a way forward for us, is apathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you know, going to climate change and gun violence. I'm just one person. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to survive. I have to get mine. I have to get by. I have no power. What am I going to do? It's hot. I'll put on my air conditioner. I don't have an AR-15. Uh, I'm exhausted. I'm tapped out. I'm working two jobs just to stay broke. It's in my interest just to tap out yeah, uh, and, and, and outsource these problems like Daniel was saying for the rest. What's the way out uh, of this trap in a way that allows us, and especially our listeners who care deeply about democracy, to invest in democracy, solidarity, uh, prosperity, equality, security, even when it seems completely unachievable in our lifetime? Okay, so there's a there's an internal message for your listeners, and then there's like an external message for what we can do. The internal message that I kind of wish I'd written in the book and realized afterwards is that I think the book is an act of political therapy, right? So a good therapist, you go and speak to a therapist, and they ask you to look in yourself and think about the patterns of behavior that you keep doing over and over that are kind of pathological in nature, and that you may never be able to stop yourself from doing but the lessons that you get from understanding those behaviors help you think of ways to adjust for them, you know, in the long run, stop them. This is the book is an attempt to ask people to think about that for politics, to understand that, look, all of us face these challenges of self-interest, right? So you guys do as well. And I do, and we might be good faith actors, right? It might be less bad for us than some others. But if we set ourselves up as, well, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, then we'll, they may be bad guys, but we may not be as good as we think we are. So I think that's an important thing to think about, like, where, how am I helping the political system get somewhere? Okay. But ultimately, it's very hard to change collective outcomes individually. And right? in, in a sense, that's part of the message of the book. And so the way that we have to do that is we either have to design some form of political institution that embeds things, right? Getting Obamacare was a hell of a lot better than not having it, right? It's mm-hmm. one way to think about this, mm-hmm. right? Now, at least there are a series of rules and principles so that you think, you know what? Somebody has to offer me health insurance, right? It might be crappy health insurance, but nonetheless, right. I can buy catastrophic health insurance in a way that I simply couldn't before that. So creating a framework that's hard to destroy, and it turned out to be pretty damn hard to destroy as the Republicans found. That's important. And Joe Biden, as a president who gets lots of legislation done, which I think is how we will look back at his term, that's not a bad thing because that legislation locks in a whole bunch of promises we're trying to make to each other. But the other way we do this is with norms. 
Uh, and norms are hard, right? Because you have to enforce norms and enforcing norms is tiring. And when people are out there constantly making bad faith claims, or making racist claims or homophobic claims or transphobic claims, it requires everybody to constantly say, actually, I'd really rather you didn't say that or actually that's wrong. And to both engage with these people to try and shift them to the norm, but also to draw lines with the norm. And the thing about social norms is the reason they work is because they're costly, right? Mm. It's about us. We have to kind of pay a cost to enforce it or it's not really meaningful. Uh, and so that doesn't mean that we, we patrol everybody all the time in a kind of over-the-top hair trigger way, but we, we know where the line is. And when people step across it, we try and enforce those norms effectively. And ben, so again, it, 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 might, be, it might be like <laughs> you're saying, people have to be, wait for it, Danielle, woke. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, it's so it's it's so upsetting that behaving nicely has has become such a you know a word where Charlie Kirk now worries about whether his mustard is ketchup or woke when he looks through the. Fridge. I worry about Charlie Kirk as as a as yeah. a whole. Um, so yeah, but you know that like, um, we're going through exactly the same thing here. We talk about woke all the time in the United Kingdom. So whatever this word is politically. It's it's being used in ways by its opponents, right? So we know that. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't enforce a lot of the things it stands for if you believe in them. A hundred percent. Ben, this has been absolutely fantastic. And we will have to have you back again, folks. The Thank book is Why Politics Fails. Um, yeah. And like you said, I do. I think that it is um, it is a little bit of therapy, which I believe we all need. Um, so thank you for listening to Democracy Ish. I am Danielle Moody. I'm Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. <laughs>